Um, tonight, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. It's going to be kind of our starting point. And then, as is the case normally when I share, we're going to be all over the place tonight in the Bible. So hopefully you're ready for that, and hopefully so are the projectionists upstairs. But um, tonight was birthed out of a lot of things. Um, a lot of things that have gone on, not just in the world, but specifically here in Texas, and then even more specifically things that have been going on in my life and in the lives of, of so many of the people here in this congregation. And, and just being able to see in real practice, in real practical application, what it means to have a prayer-filled life what it means to pray without ceasing, and what it means to be able to find joy, to rejoice always in all things. And, and the challenge that that can be so often, and, and the way that the world looks at it, and even oftentimes some people inside of churches look at it, and they just get the wrong impression, they get the wrong idea. And all over social media this past week, there were people talking about why things happened the way that they did, about what could have been done to prevent it, about whose fault it was, and even blaming the people that, that were sending their prayers, saying that if, if the prayers really worked, then it wouldn't have happened in the first place. And, and I think the reality is lost on so many people, obviously outside the church, but I think it's sometimes lost on us inside the church as well. And so tonight, I just want to talk a little bit about why we pray about what that looks like when we pray and, and what happens after the fact, what happens after we pray. So let's go ahead and, and do that first. Let's open in prayer and then we'll start talking about prayer tonight. Heavenly Father, once again, we just come into this place desiring to meet with you. We pray that that would always be our, our sole purpose. Our main reason for coming into this place would be to gather together with others that we would be able to worship you to spend time in fellowship and communion with you and to hear you speak to our hearts. We pray tonight that, that we would be receptive to everything that you desire to speak. And I pray that you would give me your words and not my own and, and that anything that is not of you, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears. But only those things that are from you, I pray would impact hearts and impact lives tonight. And so we give you this time, we give you all that we are. We ask all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's interesting as you look at the world, we've talked about this a lot before, that, that there are so many things going on, and, and although every generation could honestly say that they live in a fallen world, we are getting to a place where we're catching up, I think, to the depravity of Noah's time, when God actually said, I, I'm going to have to wipe everybody out and start over. And, and even to the point of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, it was actually several years ago that there was a, a famous preacher that said one time that if God doesn't bring judgment on America for where we were back then, then he would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah for what he did to them. And, and the, the reality of that is it starts to sink in about how bad things looked then. And this was 10, 15, 20 years ago. And then you look at some of the things that we're faced with now, the realities that we're faced with. Things that back then we never would have dreamt could have been possible for the enemy to accomplish here in America. You know, this is a nation founded upon religious freedom, but founded upon Christian beliefs. And we never would have dreamt that we would get here. And yet here we are, and, and we still continue to fall downward. 
You know, the political pundits are telling us every day that the sky is falling and that the political divide is sharper now in this country than it's been at any point in our history since the Civil War. We have tropical storms, hurricanes wreaking havoc throughout many parts of the world, devastating earthquakes that are being overshadowed by all of the other depravity that's taking place. ISIS is still hard at work trying to bring about a global caliphate larger than anything the world has ever seen. And there's a new nuclear arms race taking place in countries with leaders who honestly appear to want nothing more than to test out their new toys on some unsuspecting victim. Israel, the apple of God's eye, is under constant verbal and often physical threat, being attacked so often that it's almost become commonplace and the world, by and large, is numb to it. And inside the church, you have heresy, false teachers running rampant throughout the church across the globe, but especially here in America. And yet, despite all of this, we who are God's children have so much to look forward to and so much to be thankful for even now. I think sometimes we we fall into one of two categories, and, and neither one is a good thing. But on the one end, we become so numb to it. We just, well, God's in control. And then we, we really just blow everything off. We don't even allow the the challenges and the difficulties that we see around us to influence our hearts, to change us in any way. You know, there's a song that that I like to sing oftentimes during worship called Hosanna, and one of the the lines in, in the bridge of that song says, to break my heart for what breaks yours. To break my heart for what breaks yours. And, and as I said, so many times, I think that so many of us can just get so numb to everything. And we say the right things. We talk about how great God is and that God is still in control and God is on the throne. And then we go on our merry way because it didn't directly affect us. And it had no impact on us. We become numb to it. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the people that that are just doom and gloom. It's just how can God still be in control? How can God allow all of these things to happen? Where is the good in all of this? And yet that isn't any better because that just focuses on all the things that God is not instead of all the things that God is. Those are all the things that God is not. God is not the one who brings destruction. He's not the one who brings the evil There's a time for that, and it's going to come. But right now, that's not God that's bringing all of this pain and suffering. It's the enemy, and yet we we sometimes almost blame God as if he were the one behind all of it. And so there's a third category where I believe that we all should find ourselves, and that is as the body of Christ, leading by example as a thankful people. A thankful people acknowledging and thanking God from whom all blessings flow. We sing about it, we talk about it, we read about it, we write about it. But do we live it? Do we actually live that? To lead by example as a thankful people. God has been so good to us and he's been abundantly faithful even when we fail to thank him or even recognize what he's doing. To recognize the goodness of who he is despite all of the things that are going wrong around us. And so that brings us to the issue at hand tonight, which is why we pray. And one of the main reasons that we pray is so that we can get closer to the heart of God, so that we can hear him speak to us. It's not really about us telling him. It's about allowing ourselves to really be locked in and focused on what he's trying to tell us. 
And there's a video that I'd, I'd like to share with you tonight before we go any further. It's called the Thanksgiving Chair. Obviously, it's a, a very, very good time for this in this month as we lead into Thanksgiving. But I would challenge you that as you watch this video, to really, really allow the things that are being shared to sink in and to really make an impact. If you can go ahead and show that video, please. Maybe. No video? Man, you guys are killing me. It's like the whole sermon. It's over. I'm done. We're, we're done. We can just leave now. All right, well, while I stall for a little bit and they go get that taken care of, some of the things that it talks about here, um, as it really gets into it, it's talking about the attitude of thanksgiving, about having a thankful heart, despite all of the challenges and all the things that happen in our lives. And sometimes when we talk about these things, we talk about it in these really big and grandiose ways that, okay, well, if somebody died, this was what it would look like, and this is how I could be thankful or how I would need to work that, or if I lost my job, or all of these awful, awful things that sometimes happen. But then we fail to recognize that a lot of times the things that we have really in, right in front of us to be thankful for are the everyday, the mundane, the things that, the fact that we have a job to go to every day. You know, there are, there are a number of you in here, I'm sure, that really, really strongly dislike, if not actually hate your job. It happens, but you have to be thankful. You have to be thankful that God has given you that job, given you that opportunity. Here we go. If you can hit the lights.
first time that I watched that video, I, I was bawling. Even now, it's, it was hard to watch and, and not break down. Just to think about how challenging life has been for so many people. And it's not just in a video, it's, it's real life. People that have really gone through things that, that maybe some of us never will. And to see the attitude of prayer, the attitude of thankfulness that they have. And then, honestly, it, it puts me to shame to think about the attitude that I have at different points in my life. Whether things don't go right, or things don't go exactly the way I planned, or the way that I wanted, or, or the grudges that, that I'm so tempted to hold sometimes. You know, and then the, the example, not just for everybody else, because that's important too, but for the people that are closest to you, and, and those are important too, but especially for those of you that, like me, are parents. The example that we are supposed to set for our children and then you start thinking about the, the challenges that the people in Sutherland, Texas are facing right now. I mean, that was the, the thing that I think sent me over the edge uh, emotionally. Like, it, it was just, it ripped my heart. You know, to, to really hear some of the stories of what happened that day and how that's going to affect people's lives going forward. You know, there was an 18-month-old child that was killed. There was a pregnant mother who was killed while trying to shield her other children from bullets. There are people that, that went home that day. They went to church that day. They went to a church just like we're gathered here together tonight. They went to church desiring to meet with God, to spend time in his presence, and they went home without loved ones knowing, hopefully, that they'll be able to see them again one day in heaven, but also knowing that they were no longer going to be with them here on the earth. And just the gravity of that, the weight of that, and what that should do to us. You know, it shouldn't be something that just, well, that happened and it was way far away, or, or maybe it was close, however you want to think about it, but it shouldn't just be something that doesn't affect us. That should challenge us. It should change us. It should motivate us. There needs to be a noticeable difference today as compared to yesterday, every day, but especially when we see things like that happen because we know that time is short. And it's not just a catchy phrase. It's not just some pithy little thing that, that pastors use to try to, to dig it in so that we can get on track. It's a reality. It is the life that we live you know, we, I had a, a meeting yesterday with an insurance agent who was coming in and, and he was talking about the policy for the church and we were doing the renewal and, and one of the things that, that we have to discuss now is security, security options and, and whether or not people should be carrying weapons, whether or not we have to be on guard for that, how we need to be on guard for that, what are some of the procedures, what are the policies, what are the coverages if someone actually loses their life while attending our church service. These are things that, that we would have really honestly never dreamt of. And yet now it's becoming so much more commonplace. This world is not getting better, it's getting worse. It's not to say that it can't get better, 
But that's not the trend that we're on right now. And so where does that leave us? What, what are we supposed to do? And I would suggest to you that the first and most important thing is that we pray. Is that we pray. Contrary to what so many people on social media, like I said, what, what they are out there saying is that, you know, if, if all these prayers that you're sending really worked, then this wouldn't have happened in the first place. I don't believe that for a second. I believe that God allowed this to happen, but I don't believe that he caused it. But I do believe that he allowed it to happen, and he has a grand purpose, a grand design for that. I don't know exactly what that is. I know that in some small way, it was to break my heart for what breaks his. I don't know what else, but I know that there was more than that, but that God would break our hearts for what breaks his. And how do we get to that place where we're so in tune, so sensitive with God that our hearts break for the things that break his, that our hearts are overjoyed for the things that overjoy his, that our hearts are at rest because he's given us that rest and that peace. So why do we pray? And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, it's very, very short, very straight to the point. But I think this covers so much. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The first thing is to rejoice always. And it's an easy thing to say, but it's so difficult to live out. And then he says, to pray without ceasing, and then in everything, give thanks. And notice that these two things in the verse 16 and the beginning of verse 18, to rejoice always and in everything, give thanks, these are tied together with prayer. Because without prayer, neither one of these things can happen. It is impossible for us to rejoice while going through tragedy without spending time in prayer. It is impossible. There is not a single person on this earth that is so in tune with God that they don't have to spend time in prayer, in conversation with him to be able to get to that place where they can rejoice. There's not a single person that is close enough and in tune enough with God on the earth whose heart is so after God's that in everything they can give thanks without spending time having their hearts changed in prayer before they can get to that place. And then he says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, that this is God's desire that we would pray without ceasing, but also that it has this effect on us, that it causes us to rejoice always and to give thanks in all things. And this is God's desire for us. And so we pray for these reasons, but we pray so that we can be reminded, so that we can be reminded of who God is, of what he has done and is doing, and what he has promised to do. That's the first thing tonight. We pray so we are reminded. The first one, to be reminded of who God is, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that is who God is. In a nutshell, like if we were just going to try to boil it down as simply as we possibly could, this would be one of the great passages to be able to point to. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says, he was in the beginning. It means before time began, he was there. 
and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. That means that every single thing that has been created, and all things are created except for him, but everything that has been created was made through him and for him. And in him, in verse 4, was life, and the life was the light of men. The life that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the light of men. That's what allows us to be able to, as we spend time praying without ceasing, to rejoice always and to give thanks in all things. But we're also to be reminded as we pray of what he has done and what he is doing and how that relates to our lives. In James chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, something we've talked about many times before, James writes that every good and perfect gift is from above. And comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So every good and perfect gift, that means everything that has ever been good in your life, honestly good, not things that you wanted for yourself that you thought were good and that we got it wrong, but everything that has honestly and truly been good in our lives, all of those have come from above. They've come from our Heavenly Father, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That means that He's not going to change His mind later on. That means that His love that He's extended towards us, His grace, His mercy, the gift of His Holy Spirit, that all of these blessings that He's poured out upon us, the, the blessings that we've received in the heavenly places, the blessings that we received here on earth, that all of these things that have been given and promised to us He's not going to change his mind one day and say, I'm taking these back. He loves us so much, so much more than anybody could fully understand. And he's given us these things, and every good gift has come from him. He also helps us in our weaknesses, and he works all things together for good. In Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So we have a weakness, not just all the other things that we all have. We share some weaknesses. Some of us have unique weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. But one thing that we all have in common is that we do not always know what we should pray for. We don't always know what we should pray for. There are times that we do pray for the wrong things. We do. Hey, let's be honest about it. There are times in my life that I have prayed for something that I knew was wrong. I knew in my heart that this was wrong. And I would pray for it, and then something would happen, or a door would open that I knew I wasn't supposed to walk through, and I would go through it. I would, I would enter into whatever it was, whether it was a relationship or, or some kind of a, an activity. And I, at times, actually had the audacity to thank God for opening the door for me to go and to do something sinful. There are times that we don't know what we should pray for. There are also times that we pray for things that we ought not to or pray for something that, that we just didn't know what to pray for because we're not praying what God has already shown us to be his will. We're still praying against it. You know, one of the passages that we're going to get to later on is, is a, a, just a beautiful passage of Jesus spending time in prayer with his Father. And he says, this is what I want. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the Spirit knows that. The Holy Spirit knows that. And so he helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession. He prays along with us and for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And then in verse 27, it says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so the end of verse 27 there, he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So he's praying the will of God for us in our lives. But then, in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that you can go out and sin and do whatever you want and that God's just going to somehow magically wipe everything else away and make everything good for you. But what that does mean is that when we do what we ought, when we spend time in prayer, when we allow the Spirit to help us in our weakness, then we're growing in that relationship. We're learning to pray for the things that we ought. And God allows all of those things to work together for good. If we will trust him, if we love him, if we spend time with him. And it's not that, that you, by spending more time with God that, that somehow we're, we're earning brownie points and now he's going to give us more blessings. It's that God is trying to explain to us, look, if you will just do these things, these things are going to turn out well for you doesn't mean everything's going to go perfect. It doesn't mean you're going to be without hardship. But all things are going to work together for good if you will just follow my lead. You may not see it right now, but I promise you I'm going to lead you where you need to go. And if we're faithful to follow that lead, then we've... We just have these blessings. God has prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in them. And part of that includes blessings that God has prepared for us to walk in. I mean, just think about that. That That's the way that God wants this whole relationship to work. Is that he's already prepared the good works. And he's prepared the blessings if we'll just follow his lead. He says, look, I know that you want this. But if you will just follow my lead, I'm going to blow your mind with how much better this is going to be. We don't know what that looks like ever. You know, there's memes. For Some of you guys may not know what memes are, but, but memes are these little graphics that get tossed around social media. And, and so it's a little picture, and maybe they have a caption. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But there's this really, really popular one that has Jesus asking. It's a, a picture of Jesus, and he's got this huge teddy bear behind him. And then there's a little, little child, either a little boy or a little girl, and they've got this tiny little bear, like a beanie baby, you know, just one of those little, little bears. And Jesus is holding out his hand asking for that, that little bear so that he can give that child this huge bear. And obviously it's so much deeper than that, but it simplifies the idea so much and so well. That sometimes the things that we're holding on to, the things that we're praying for when we pray, not as we should, but as we do, that God is trying to say, just let it go. Let this go and let me replace that with something so much better. Something from me. Something that's not man-made. Something that that isn't going to fade. Something that's going to last forever. Something that is going to allow you to, as we get back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, to rejoice 
always and to give thanks in all things. So he wants to help us if we'll only allow him. The next part is that he's made us alive together in him. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, we went through this recently. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. We were literally dead. We were spiritually dead. And we have been made alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. And he's raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's already set it up if we will only follow his lead. The next thing is that we are reminded as we pray of what he has promised to do. So we're reminded first of who he is, then we're reminded of all he's done and is currently doing, but then we are also reminded and encouraged of what he has promised to do. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, it says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so God has promised in his word to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. Those are four amazing promises in one verse, in one passage. That after we've suffered a little while, after we've suffered a little while, it doesn't just say, you know, just let me get your feet wet so that you can, you know, be able to get through the next part. But it says after you've suffered for a little while, after you've hurt, after you've experienced pain, after you've gone through sorrow, that he will perfect to complete. He will establish to, to strengthen, to build us up, and then to settle us, to grant us that peace that passes all understanding, that we would be able to, as, as Paul said, go through all of these things and be able to say, none of these things move me. None of these things move me, and on top of that, to be able to rejoice always and give thanks in all things. And the only way possible is if we remember who God is, what he's done and is doing, and what he's promised to complete. He also promises that he is faithful to complete what he's begun in us. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, it says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is going to be faithful if he has begun it in you. If you are a child of his and he has begun a good work in you, then he will complete it. He will complete that in you until the day of Jesus Christ. Until he calls you home, he is going to be working to complete and to perfect, to strengthen, to establish, and to settle you. And he's promised to never leave us on our own. In John 14, 16 through 18, another passage that we've been through very, very recently, 
It says, and I will pray the Father, this is Jesus speaking, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you and I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. That he has promised to be with us. He has promised also to never leave us or forsake us. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And that, I think, in light of everything that happened on Sunday is, is a very, very powerful passage. He says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, why, why would we fear man who can take this, this physical body over God who could destroy a soul or save a soul? What can man honestly do to us that is greater than what God could protect us from? You know, the people that, that lost their lives, they, I heard all these terrible things on social media, but there was also a clip. I think it was uh, a news show on Fox News. But wherever it was, they were, it was political commentary, and they were talking about it. They were discussing the, the tragedy that had happened. And, and the, the lady that was in this clip, she was talking about the fact that, you know, not to make light of it, but if you were going to go, what better place than to go when you were there to meet with Jesus? What better place than, than when you were in church desiring to just hear from God, desiring to spend time in fellowship and communion with him, desiring to really allow him to reset your life? Because that's really what, what it comes down to is for us, we have to be reset time and time and time again, to be recentered. And what better place to leave this earth and spending time in fellowship with other believers and with him. And, and I thought that that was such a, an interesting perspective on it. Something that the world didn't get at all. You know, immediately there were all these people criticizing that and, you know, how dare you make light of it and all these things. But she wasn't making light of it. She really truly believed that. And do we have that kind of safety and security in our relationship with Jesus? but that we would also be recentered. A trap that I fall into a lot of times in my life, and it, it happened again just recently, is making molehills into mountains and turning mountains into molehills. To take the, the things that shouldn't mean much and turn them into this life-altering experience, and then to take something as powerful as an experience with God, as spending time in his word, as, as spending time in worship with him, as being able to lead someone to Christ, taking all of these huge mountains and these amazing things and making them insignificant. Last week, it was exactly a week ago today, there was so much anxiety in my heart and it was all about a baseball game. The reality, I mean, it's, it's striking for me. You know, so much has happened in this last week, but a week ago today, it seemed like that was such an important event. It seemed like that was such an important thing. 29 years, you know, it, it, this, this was a big deal. 
And, and I was a huge fan, I still am a fan, but so much. And I had spent so many nights waiting up late watching games and, and you know, my emotions on a roller coaster. You know, feeling like my life was going like this. And it was all a baseball game. Somebody would hit a home run, and then the other team would hit a home run, and then they'd hit a home run, and it, just back and forth, back and forth. And, and for some reason, I was so worked up about it that I literally had pain in the back of my neck when I woke up. I was stressed. There was one night that, that as it got to the end of the game and, and the team that I was cheering for won, they hit a home run, and then they followed it up with a double, and then they hit another home run. I literally felt the stress draining from my body. I could not believe it. That was the first clue that maybe I was a little too wrapped up in it. And my wife knew it right away too, but she was very, very gracious. She said, I told you, and, and that was it. But, you know, so a week ago today, I was so wrapped up in that. And then game seven ended last Wednesday and life went on. And then reality began to set in. Reality began to set in. And there were things that happened over the next few days. There were conversations that I had with different people. There are surgeries that are taking place, life-threatening illnesses, people losing jobs, houses being foreclosed on, people that are coming in questioning their salvation or maybe even God's existence or presence in their lives, even questioning their reason for living. And those are all conversations that I had between last Wednesday and this Wednesday. And those weren't conversations, you know, with, with somebody out there, way out there. Those are people that probably some of you know. In fact, probably I would, I would venture to say that everybody in here knows at least one of those situations that's going on, whether it's going on in your life or somebody close to you. And those are all things that are important. Those are things that are meaningful. And those are opportunities for us to be used for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God, to be able to help as God has promised to be that helper and to perfect, to establish, to strengthen, and to settle. That God is calling us to do that. That he's called us to be ambassadors of him, to go out and to take this good news. Not the good news about whatever sports team just won. Not to take out the good news about whatever else is going on, that, that superfluous, that next year nobody's going to remember. But to talk about the goodness of God, the glory of who he is, of all that he has done, all that he's doing right now, and all that he's promised to complete, to be used for that. And, and it was a, a, a gradual progression you know, I'm, I'm burying my heart for you guys that last Wednesday, I was honestly not where I was supposed to be. It's not that I had glorified baseball and God had just lost his spot in my life. It wasn't anything dramatic like that. But I had allowed baseball to creep into places that it probably didn't need to be, to places of importance and priority that it probably didn't need to be. And I hope I didn't miss out on anything that God was calling me to do, but I do know that it was almost immediately following that that God then started to use me to talk to different people about all these different things that are going on. 
to be able to pray with people, to, to be able to, to see what I felt about just a simple baseball game as the stress left my body, to be able to pray with somebody and to talk through things and, and to allow them to talk and just to, to bear their soul and to see the stress leave them about something that really mattered. And it allowed me to start getting re-centered, to be re-centered on the right things. Sutherland, Texas, you know, they went through a lot. Nearly 30 people from a church of less than 60 were killed and several others were injured. Children as young as 18 months old among the dead, as well as parents and grandparents trying to shield their loved ones. And when you start thinking about the gravity of that, it helps us to get recentered. It helps us to put things in perspective because if tomorrow is the last day that I have, I want to make it count. It doesn't mean that you can't do all these other things. It doesn't mean that, well, Pastor Sean was talking about making tomorrow count because it could be my last day, so I'm not going to work tomorrow. That's not what I'm saying. You still got to go out and do the things, the responsibilities, the things that God has placed in your life, but you need to take Jesus with you wherever you go. Jesus has to be a part of all of that. When he says pray without ceasing, that's what he's talking about. Obviously, it, it's so much more than being on your knees in a prayer closet and, and saying all these things. Because pray without ceasing, God wouldn't have put it in there if he didn't mean it. And since he put it in there, he meant it. And if he meant it, then that means prayer is so much more than all of those things. I mean, think about it. Just the, the logic of it. To, to pray without ceasing, if that truly meant that you had to get on your knees every single time you pray, how would you function? How could you go to work? Why would God even have extended beyond the knee? So it makes no sense to say that the only time that I can pray is when I can get on my knees. If God had meant for prayer to only take place inside of Bible studies or inside of a church, then we would have had to find a way to create our own utopian society, to build a church so big that we had our own ecosystem, that we had our own financial system, that we governed ourselves and did all these things. And there are people that try to do that. But I don't believe that that's what God was saying. But he says, pray without ceasing. How does that look? How does that work? You know, to pray without ceasing, we talk about praying and, and, and spending time with God and, and uttering these things and speaking our prayer. But if it was always something that had to be spoken out loud, how would we get anything done? If all that we were doing, it would be like a musical, but, but with prayer. And you'd have to find a way to work in, can I buy a sandwich, into your prayer. Like, how does that work? How does that function? It doesn't. And yet he still says, pray without ceasing. So what does that look like? What does that mean? How do we do this when we, we know now that we have to? We know that we, we really need to. We know some of the reasons that we should. But what does that actually look like? It means having constant communion and fellowship with God. It means that, that wherever we go, whatever we're doing, not just the holy things, but the mundane things, that we take God with us, that we are actively seeking out God's will for our lives about everything, about everything. You know, I, I don't necessarily agree with everything that he said, and I honestly don't even know that this was really 
his quote, but it's a quote that's been widely attributed to Thomas Aquinas. And he said that, that if you want to, to really do this right, basically, and we're going to do Sean's paraphrase to make this easier, but if you want to do this thing rightly, if you want to live rightly, then you just make sure that you submit yourself to God, and then you go and do whatever's in your heart to do. Because if you are in line with God, if you're attuned to God, if you're being led by his Holy Spirit all the time, every moment of every day, then you don't have to constantly have this struggle of, oh, what should I do in this? Oh, I don't know, where should I go? There are times that it's hard to find the will of God. But there are others that we make it harder than it should be. God wants us to know his will. I mean, stop and think about that for a moment. God didn't want to make this difficult for us to figure out what he wants from us. You know, I, I've, I've been in counseling sessions where, where I've had to tell somebody, look, it, this would work out so much better for the two of you if you guys would stop holding each other to the standards that neither one of you tell each other about. Well, they, they don't do this, they don't do this, they don't do this. And then the other person says, well, why didn't you ever tell me that I needed to do those things? I had no idea. That's not the relationship that we have with God. God wants us to know his will. He wants us to know his will so that we can walk in the good works that he's prepared for us beforehand so that we can do this thing well so that we can be the example of Jesus Christ that he desires us to be so that we can be holy and set apart to be sanctified because he who called us is holy so that we can receive all of these blessings that he's stored up for us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus not because of works but because of grace and mercy and love. He wants us to know his will. That's why he sent his Holy Spirit, so that we would be able to understand his will, so that the Spirit could pray for us in our weakness as we didn't know what we should pray for, as we didn't know what we should do. He sent the great helper, and that we would be able to say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And to be centered on that, to be centered on who God is and what his will is for us. In Luke 22, verses 39 through 44, it says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, speaking of Jesus. As he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I mean, that's intensity. That's intensity because he knew how difficult it had already been. He knew how difficult it was going to become. And so he's praying, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that has been so meaningful to me personally in my walk with Jesus Christ. To be able to see that he was sharing his heart with his father. To know that I have the same opportunity. That I can share with my heavenly father and I can tell him honestly when this looks too difficult. When I hope that it's going to go differently. When I wish that there was another way that I can be honest with God and I can share that as long as I bookend it with 
Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. To understand that what's really important is not what I want or my comfort or my safety, my security, but it's the will of God. That that's what's important. And that's what prayer allows us to do. It allows us to get re-centered as we focus on who he is, on all that he's done and is doing and all that he's promised to complete. It helps us to be able to trust that he knows what he's doing. And it sounds kind of silly, but sometimes we need to be reminded of that. That he knows what he's doing, that he has a plan and a purpose, and that he wants us to know his will for our lives. Another part of understanding that and getting to that place is more of him and less of me. We sang that song, Holy Fire, Empty Me Tonight. Because that's what it takes. In John chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You, bear yourself, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, speaking of Jesus, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. That he must increase and I must decrease. That needs to be part of the attitude of our heart at all times, that he must increase and I must decrease because when I don't consciously think about that, maybe I'm different, but when I don't consciously think about that, it always goes the other way. You know, it's like this scale that's just constantly in motion. It's trying to get out of balance, trying to get back to the place of all me and less of God. I have to consciously think about more of you and less of me. More of you, God, and less of me. Because if it's not something that I'm consciously thinking about, it's going to go in the wrong direction. And it's not wrong to have hobbies and interests that aren't directly tied to the Bible or the furtherance of the gospel, but we need to have the priorities in the right order. And there's an acronym that, that maybe some of you have heard, and it's JOY. I think Pastor Charlie has shared it before. I can't remember where I got it from. It might be from him. But JOY, Jesus, others, and you. Our relationship with Jesus is paramount. That has to be the most important thing, and it should be above everything else. Then others includes first our families, which are a gift and a blessing that God has given to us, entrusted us, to nurture and minister to, and then to the body of Christ, which in, in a sense is our extended family, and then to the world. And then lastly, the last thing is us. Not that we should never think about ourselves, not that we should never have a hobby, not that we should ever have time to do things that we want to do or that we like to do, but that we have to make sure that we're doing things in the right order, that we have the priorities straight. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It doesn't say don't look out for your own interests. It says look out for more than just your own interests. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. That should be the mindset that we have. He says, let this mind be in you. 
that was in Christ Jesus who had all of these things and is amazing. He is God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Again, he was obedient. He said, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Yours be done. He was obedient unto death. Unto the end, he was obedient. And it would be nice if everything fit into one of these three categories and we could just move through life and say, okay, well, this is number one, this is number two, this is number three, and we just got to make sure that we knock them out in order every day. But that's not, life's not that simple. You know, everything's kind of intermingled. Everything kind of comes together. But we need to pray so we can have the discernment. That's another benefit of spending time in prayer. So we pray to be re-centered and to receive the discernment to know what is really important and what is really not. And then the last reason that we pray is to be obedient to God's will. Because God told us to pray. He told us not only that he wants us to, but he told us to. If that weren't enough, we pray because he told us in his word and Jesus showed us by example. There are tons of passages that we could go through of Jesus just in the Gospels, spending time in prayer. Matthew 14, 23, he sent the multitudes away. He goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when the evening came, he was alone there, just spending time with the Father. In Luke 6, 12 and 13, now it came to pass in those days that he went to the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Jesus did it. What more do we need? Jesus did it, and he led by example. We already talked a little bit about the Garden of Gethsemane. So that leads us to how do we pray? How do we pray? Without ceasing. That can be with or without your voice. That could be on your knees. It could be on your feet. It could be sitting. It could be laying down. Wherever you are, not just in a church, not just in distress, also in times of joy. Spurgeon wrote that every place is hallowed ground to a hallowed heart, and every day is a holy day to a holy man. That every place is hallowed ground to a hallowed heart. That if we are truly doing this right, we should be in prayer all the time. Pray without ceasing. Whatever you're doing, not just the holy things. Certainly there are special times, special places, special ways that we set aside for us to be able to focus more on prayer so that our hearts can just really be set. But that's, God doesn't need that. That's for us. And it's good. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. You know, you should have a time that you set aside. And it doesn't have to be like every day you set the alarm. But there needs to be a time in every day that we set aside just to spend time with God. Just to be focused upon Him. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the time we stop praying. Or we cut off communication with Him. It means we're constantly praying. The next thing, how do we pray? So we do it without ceasing. We do it humbly. In Luke 18 verses 10 through 14... Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood afar off and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What better place and how much easier could it possibly be to be humble than in the presence of God? You know, just think about it. If we're spending time with each other, we could probably nitpick and say, well, I, I can probably do this better than you, and yeah, you could probably do that better than me. But what could any of us say that we do as well as God? And yet, there are times that we come in prayer with a lack of humility. You know, God, you're so blessed because I'm so good. And we may not say it like that, but that's the tone that our prayers can take. That's the tone that this man had. And yet the reality is that all the time, our, our attitude, our prayer needs to be, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. There's a song that's popular right now on the radio. It's called, Oh God, Forgive Us. It says, we've prayed the prayer with no reply. Words float off into the night. Couldn't cut our doubt with the sharpest knife. Oh God, forgive us. Silence isn't comfortable. We want drive-through peace and instant hope. Our shallow faith has left us broke. Oh God, forgive us. Enslaved to our uncertainty, help us with our unbelief. Oh God, forgive us. Young and old, black and white, we're rich and poor, there's no divide. Hear the mighty, hear the powerless, singing, oh God, forgive us. With our white flag sailing in the night, eyes pointed to the sky, hands up and open wide, open wide, oh God, forgive us. And I think that, that that's really a picture of what this, this man had, what this tax collector felt. You know, the bridge, yeah, it's flowery language, but it says, with our white flag sailing in the night, that means that, that we're, we've been at war. We have been at war with God, and we are finally giving up. We are finally giving up. We are giving in. We are submitting and surrendering to his will, to his leading in our lives. Eyes pointed to the sky, hands up and open wide. God, forgive us, and God, hold me. The best thing that I've ever heard about actually being in a worship service, about spending time in fellowship with God as we sing songs together is why do people raise their hands? And everybody does it for different reasons. Some people honestly just do it to look holy. But the best reason that I've ever heard, and when I do it, is because it's like your child reaching up to you saying, hold me. That is one of the true joys of my life, to see my kids do that and then to think about that in relation to God and the joy that it has to bring to his heart when our hearts just want to be held, when we just want to reach up and we just want to allow God to have his perfect work accomplished in us and through us, to enfold us in his arms and his love and his will to be set, to be centered, to be in tune with him, just to be so in awe of who he is and what he wants to accomplish in us. And that is why we pray, so that we can get to that place, so that we rem we're reminded of who he is, of his love towards us. And when we do this, when we do it rightly, 
Not in vain repetitions, not, not saying our fathers and whatever else. Not just making words, making it sound flowery when God sees right through to the heart. But when we honestly pray before the Lord, God is blessed. And we are blessed in return. When there is honesty in our prayers. And when we do that rightly, our joy is made full. We're attuned to the Holy Spirit and we receive perfect peace. And that's where we're going to close here tonight is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. All of them, everything, all of your requests, not just the things that, that you know are right, but all of them, to let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He wants to give you joy. He wants to establish you, to strengthen you, to perfect you, to settle you. It covers everything. Everything that you will face, he wants to fix and accomplish. And he wants to receive the glory from that if we will only allow him. Amen?